Um, we're doing a couple of things differently. Just want to say that up front. First of all, there's no bingo pictures. Um, secondly, most of you probably know I don't, I don't typically preach uh, topical messages, but this one has been a long time coming. Uh, this is a sermon I want a lot of people to hear um, because I believe this truth needs to be said and I believe it needs to be spread. So I just want to tell you that. I want you to take it to heart. Uh, hopefully you'll, you'll memorize some of this so you can better defend the truth. And, and I, I ask you, if you're watching online, share the link so that more people will listen. Uh, the message title today is The Truth About Abortion. The Truth About Abortion. And to be frank, uh, I, I wrote most of what you're about to hear back in May, actually. Um, I felt led to when there was a, it was the, the week that Alan was going to preach. And I felt led to, to write this at that time. Um, this is before we even know, uh, knew that Roe v. Wade was going to definitely be overturned. And so, which, by the way, I'm incredibly thankful for. Um, praise God for that. Uh, after 49 years, the prayers of, of godly people throughout this country have been answered with a resounding yes. And just in case you didn't know, uh, 49 years, somebody brought this to my attention, I was like, wow, that's awesome. 49 years is also, uh, in the Old Testament, that was the year of Jubilee, every 49th year. Interesting. Just throwing that out there. Uh, before we get into the message itself, I want, to, I want to outline what's going to come, and I, and I want to do this kind of to prepare you for what you're going to hear. So first, we are going to define abortion, what it is and how it works, without being unnecessarily graphic, Okay. Second, we're going to briefly touch on the history of abortion in the world and the response from God's people. Um, thirdly, we are going to look at Roe v. Wade and what the effects of, of that decision have been on America and on the world. Um, fourth, I'd like to distinguish the four main uh, basic viewpoints on abortion. And then fifth, I'm going to summarize the main arguments that are in favor of abortion and try to respond using reason, science, and, and scripture, most importantly. Uh, sixth, I'm going to share what I believe is the biblical view of abortion, and then lastly, we're going to look at what Christians should do, including the proper way to, to treat um, the people that we would consider opponents in this. And I want us to consider a call to action. So that's, that's seven things that we're going to try to cover in one sermon, so, so please don't expect this to be exhaustive. It is a little longer than usual. I hope it keeps you awake. Listen, if you have any questions, drop me a line later. Um, we can talk about that. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, I just want to ask in Jesus' name for each person here that you will open their hearts and minds, Father, uh, to be able to receive the truth in this message. Lord, I, I, do, not, um, I do not think that, uh, that I have everything right, Lord. I know that there are things that, uh, that you're still working on me with, Lord, just as I still have sin in my life that you're working through. But Father, I do believe um, that what I'm teaching from this pulpit today about abortion is the truth, and I pray, God, that you will convict all of us of it. Lord, we ask that you will uh, help today to be a day where the seeds that are planted take root in good soil and that they may bear fruit for your kingdom. And, um, and Lord, as you know, I'm, I'm a little amped today, maybe, uh, maybe a little distracted and nervous as well, so I just pray that you will help me to be able to stay focused and uh, let this message come out the way it's supposed to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First, let's define abortion. I think a, a fair definition of abortion for, um, for the purpose of this message is the intentional destruction and removal of a developing human being from his or her mother's body. And I want to define it because the word abortion is sometimes used for other things. For instance, 
what was previously called a miscarriage is now often referred to as a spontaneous abortion. Um, but changing the language, which they've done since Roe v. Wade, incidentally, changing that language uh, can potentially confuse um, two very different things, and that is, uh, first of all, the, the undesired loss of a preborn baby and the intentional destruction of that same preborn baby. Those two things should not be confused, okay? So for sensitivity's sake, some feel like the, the term miscarriage um, sounds like it blames the mother, and so I support using the term pregnancy loss for women who have been in this tragic situation. It is very, very difficult if any of you have lived through that. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing to experience. Um, but to be clear, the vast majority of times that people say abortion, they are referring to purposely ending a, a pregnancy by either surgically or chemically destroying and removing a developing human being from the mother's body. Okay, I want to make that clear. Now, chemically speaking, one of the more recent developments is referred to as the abortion pill. It's, it's used uh, when the preborn baby is still very tiny. It's actually two pills. Uh, the first causes the baby to stop developing. And the second one uh, it causes the mother's body to expel the child prematurely. And, and, and thankfully, by God's grace, there's another medication that's recently been created, and it can undo the damage of the first pill if the mother takes the first pill and then changes her mind within the 24 to 48 hours that are required in between the pills. And it actually causes the baby to resume development. And we learned about this from the snails, um, as not the snails, but um, the snails, they're uh, folks from Hope Women's Center, and they are wonderful people. They're doing an incredible work out there, uh, really helping moms and, um, and families. So anyway, I, I wanted to just share that. So if a mother changes her mind, she's able to take the second pill, resuming development. It's amazing. Surgical abortions are typically uh, when the child is further along and the mother is put to sleep for the procedure and her, her uterus is scraped and the preborn infant is then sucked out with a medical vacuum. And in more developed babies... The abortionists will use instruments to dismember the child before employing the vacuum. And, and this, this is the stuff of horror. I mean, it, it, it's very, it, it, it's, it's awful to, to think about. Since preborn babies, they have a central nervous system from about the second month on and are capable of, of feeling pain. And I'm not going to expand on the gruesome details for the sake of, you know, sensitive people listening. I understand that, but simply put, Abortion, whether chemical or surgical, is the intentional killing of a developing human being. So now that we've defined it, how long has this process been around, this practice? More specifically, uh, how did the ancient world relate to the idea, particularly God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, of abortion? How did, they, how did they respond to this? First of all, you know abortion's been around for literally thousands of years? Okay, you may or may not have known that. Um, it's, it was much less sophisticated. Um, and also, for much of that time, infanticide, which is the, the murder of babies who have already been born, is how that's typically defined, that's also been legally practiced in most of the same cultures that practiced abortion. In ancient Judaism, though, this wasn't the case. Um, while the Hebrew Bible, it, it doesn't say anything specific to abortion. Um, however, the Talmud which, of course, you could say, thou shalt not kill. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, the Talmud was the written body of rabbinic teaching. It's what the rabbis 
kind of compiled and put together that the Jews lived by, and they considered abortion a form of murder, as does Orthodox Judaism today, by the way, except in the case of saving the mother's life. Now, on top of that, Christianity, from its beginning, has always opposed all forms of infanticide, including abortion, until modern progressivism. And I'm putting that in air quotes. From its inception, the Christian church considered abortion the unjust killing of a human being. The Didache, which is considered the manual of the first century church on matters of faith and practice, it specifically prohibited abortion. And this was very unique because in the, in the ancient Greco-Roman culture, it, it, was, it was pretty much only the Jews and Christians that believed abortion was wrong. And many Gentiles would, would just leave their babies on cliffs. They would leave them on trash heaps uh, to die of exposure. And Christians were actually known to rescue those abandoned babies and raise them as their own. Clearly, acceptance of abortion is extremely recent among professing believers, which is, and it's, it's totally unprecedented in church history. And if you want to read more about that, uh, he's not here today, he's been sick. Please be praying for Dennis, by the way. Uh, he just has a lot of fatigue right now. But Dennis gave me a wonderful book about abortion and its history uh, through the church and, and uh, the ancient world. It's very interesting. If anybody wants to borrow it, you're welcome to. So what was Roe v. Wade? In 1968... Jane Roe, actually uh, 21-year-old Ms. Norma McCorvey, sued for the right to abort her third child. Her mother had custody of the first. She adopted out her second child. This is her third child. But Mrs. McCorvey was in Texas, and at that time, as it is today, it was illegal except in cases where it was necessary to save the mother's life. And by the way, she also tried claiming that the child was a product of rape. She later admitted that that was untrue, but... Um, anyway, her baby was born, and her baby was adopted out well before the case was settled. But since it was such a big case, it stuck around. It kept getting kicked up higher and higher in the court system until it finally reached the U.S. Supreme Court. And so, based on a, a, a terrible misappropriation of the 14th Amendment's right to privacy, the federal court decided that states should not restrict access to abortion in most cases. And there's a lot more to that story, okay, including that Jane Roe was later, she became pro-life. You may know that, you may not. Anyway, uh, but that's the gist of it. So despite what many people still seem to think, all Roe v. Wade actually did was restrict individual states from making abortion illegal. And that's important. It's important because I want us to understand, overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't make abortion a federal crime. It just gives states the right to make their abortion laws for themselves. And we're going to talk about that later too. But for now, let, let, let's talk about the effects of Roe versus Wade since 1973. In less than five decades, the United States of America has aborted approximately 65 million preborn human beings. This is a staggering number. Did you hear that? 65 million human beings. For comparison, it's about the same as the combined populations today of Oregon. Oklahoma, Connecticut, Utah, Iowa, Nevada, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, Idaho, West Virginia, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, 
Rhode Island, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming combined. I was very tempted to bring a little bell up here and ring it, ding, every 39 seconds during the sermon because it was every 39 seconds that a child was aborted in the United States. But I just thought it'd be too distracting. Every 39 seconds. Just let that sink in. Worldwide, by the way, roughly that same number of babies is aborted every single year. Okay, um, let's discuss some positions on abortion. There are two similar positions that are often confused with each other, okay? That's pro-abortion and pro-choice. And to be fair, the reason that they're often mixed up is that they're not all that different, but there are some significant differences. We'll talk about that in just a minute. A person who is pro-abortion typically believes there's nothing inherently wrong with killing a pre-born developing human being. And they're very much in favor of abortion on demand for any reason, including as birth control, okay? Now, a person who professes to be pro-choice, they may also share that perspective, but typically it's a larger umbrella, okay? Many folks who say they're pro-choice will also claim that they are personally opposed to abortion and would never get one themselves, but they argue that the woman should have the right to choose whether or not to abort her child, and we'll address that perspective in a bit. Um, On the other side of the debate, are those who are typically referred to as pro-life. They usually believe that abortion is, is almost always morally wrong. Sometimes they have caveats, um, such as in cases of imminent death for the mother, severe birth defects, cases of rape and incest, things like that. Uh, and then there are anti-abortionists who are usually opposed to abortion for any reason, uh, in any situation, with no mitigating circumstances. So those are the, the four uh, basic positions. There's different shades in between, I think, but... On one side are those who believe a woman has a right to destroy the developing human being in her womb, and on the other side are those who disagree. Now, we're going to take a few moments. We're going to examine the main arguments on the pro-abortion side, and then we're going to respond. And I know there are more, but I think the vast majority of arguments for abortion tend to fall into one of three categories, okay? First, a pre-born baby is not a person and thus has no legal right to life or anything else. Secondly, the mother has the right to choose what happens with her body. And thirdly, birthing and rearing a child would be either an undue or unfair hardship for the mother and or the baby. And personally, I think this is the most nuanced of the three arguments, uh, and we'll address a few reasons as we go. I know I keep saying that, but trust me, we're going to go through this stuff as we go. Um, Remember, this is not comprehensive, but most Pro-choice, pro-abortion arguments fit under one of those three, okay? So so let's address them one at a time with reason and science, and then we'll see what Scripture has to say. Firstly, a pre-born human being is not a person is one argument, and this, this perspective is often expressed as it's just a clump of cells, or it's just a lump of tissue, or it's not a person because it's not viable outside of its mother. Um, And to reply to this, first of all, I want to summarize a well-known argument. This is called the SLED argument, S-L-E-D. To get around the personhood of a pre-born baby, those who support abortion often rely on one of four things. The pre-born baby's size, his or her level of development, the environment 
i.e., in the womb or not, and the degree of dependency. Now, the following is a counter-argument to each of these. Um, they're actually not out here. I was going to ask Norma and Dave to both stand up. Um, and then I was going to ask you, are either of these people less valuable than the other because of their size? The answer is obviously not, okay? One is much larger than the other, but they, you object, <laughs> but they are of equal value in the sight of God. The size of a person doesn't determine their value, but what about their, what about their level of development? You know, um, you, can, you can look at, at Shannon and Evie and see that they are two different levels of development. That doesn't mean that they are of less value. They draw about the same, I'll be honest, but, uh, but clearly, you know, Shannon is more mentally and physically developed than a six-year-old, and that's how it is, but that doesn't mean that, that Evie is of less value than Shannon. Now, what about environment? You know, take a look back there at, uh, at Miss Vanna. Say, hi, Vanna. A few minutes ago, her husband, Mark, wasn't in the room, were you? Nope, he was in the office. And he was doing something in there with, with your money. He was putting it in his pocket. I'm just kidding. He was, he was, he was setting up, you know, get, getting the tithes and the offerings put together and the things that they're supposed to be, you know, sent to. And, and he was tallying that. And even though he was in a different environment and he wasn't visible to you, was he any less valuable than his lovely wife? No. And look, here he is with us now. Same guy. He's the same guy whether he was in the office or whether he was in this room. How about that? Finally, the degree of dependency, which is uh, also known as the viability test. The argument is that a preborn baby couldn't survive outside of his or her mother. Folks, can you show me a postborn infant capable of surviving outside of his mother for long by himself? Heck, some teenagers just can't. <laughs> anyway, Rebecca, can you stand up and show off that beautiful child? Take a look at that. that. That is Levi. How old is he? Four months old and eight days. So sweet. Is he able to take care of himself? Obviously not. Thank you. He can't change his own diapers. He can't feed himself. He can't care for himself in even the most basic way. He needs a mama. And any scientist can tell you, that a baby left on a sidewalk for a week is not going to be viable, even if it's outside the womb. Are we tracking? So it's clear that neither size, level development, environment, nor degree of dependency are what determines personhood. But what does science tell us about preborn babies? We know this. We know that their little heart begins beating in the third week. I've heard it as late as fifth or sixth, but I recently read third week. And we know that he or she has a functional brain and a functional nervous system very soon after that, sometimes even before mom knows she's pregnant. We know that preborn babies respond to stimuli like light and voices long before birth. And they also, they fit multiple scientific criteria for life. You know, according to mccl.org, this, this includes growth by cell reproduction. It includes metabolism, a human genetic signature. And it even says uh, a preborn child, and this is their quote, is an organism rather than mere organ or tissue with a complete genetic code. 
You know what? I also read recently, this isn't in my notes, but I read this, I think it was yesterday, 96% of biologists say life begins at conception. It's not a popular view. And these are secular guys, these are, but they said life begins at conception. Here's the question, though. Are they people? Well, let's see what Scripture has to say. How about that? Let's look at what, let's look at what the Bible says. Finally, we're going to open our Bibles, if you would. Please open your Bible to Psalm 139. This is so unusual for us. We usually have the Bible open before we even dig in. But, um, but turn to Psalm 139. Starting in verse 13, King David indicates that God's hand is intimately associated with the creation of babies in the womb. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And likewise, in the first few verses of Jeremiah, the Lord says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is reiterating the Lord's involvement with babies in the womb. Now, for a more personal story, we read part of it earlier. We can go to Luke chapter 1. And we can see that God promised the parents of John the Baptist, that their child would have the Holy Spirit from the womb. You know, there's no doubt that John the Baptist was a living person, even within his mother's womb, because of his reaction to Mary's voice. You remember this? I mean, if you're not familiar with the passage, it starts in, in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You know, it's been said that, rightly, I believe, that a, a, a fetus was the first person to rejoice at the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's clear that from Scripture that a baby in the womb is a person. Oftentimes, though, even if willing to admit pre-born infants are human, a pro-abortion or a pro-choice person might say that the bodily autonomy uh, of the mother outweighs the right of the baby to live. The, the argument's typically phrased as, my body, my choice, uh, keep your laws off my body, things like that. Um, but from the standpoint of reason, let's point out the obvious first. Any woman making this statement is not talking about aborting herself. I mean, that sounds really obvious, but I'm going to say that. Now, if that were the case, I would advise against that too, right? As we should. We don't want that. But invariably, a person making this argument is referring to this alleged right to destroy a pre-born developing human being that is inside of and distinct from that woman's body. Now let's, let's discuss my body, my choice for a minute. Um, according to, to the, the Guttmacher Institute, they are definitely not a Christian organization, okay? But they, they are probably one of the best sources of tracking abortion. About one in a hundred women who seek an abortion did not willingly engage in intercourse. And we're going to come back to that 1% later. But 99 out of 100 chose to be sexually active knowing that there was a risk of being impregnated. 
And a reasonable question is, could the other 99% of abortion-seeking women have made a different choice regarding their body rather than risk becoming pregnant? Now, I understand that this argument can sound trite if it's used flippantly. And we must not do that. I'm not intending to do that. No Christian should throw that out there in a condescending way. Because, listen, it is not beneficial to be insulting when you're having a discussion of this importance. This is, this is literally talking about life or death here. So it shouldn't be used as a weapon. Well, your choice was back then. But let's recognize the fact. Okay? So we have to be careful how we approach this topic, and we're going to talk more about that before we finish. But that said, it's still valid that in the vast majority of cases, any choice that's related solely to the woman's body was made prior to the pregnancy. Of course, many people will disagree. They'll still claim the, the child is part of the mother's body, but scientifically speaking, biology backs up what most of us already know by our, our human reason. It has been proven on a molecular level that a preborn baby is a separate human being from his or her mother. Here's some facts. From the moment that an egg is fertilized, the zygote has its own DNA. It's separate from the mother's DNA. It includes 23 of her chromosomes and 23 of her, uh, the father's chromosomes. This preborn developing child and his or her mother also have separate circulatory systems, separate skeletons, endocrine systems, central nervous systems, etc., etc. One can get sick without the other getting sick, uh, and vice versa, right? A, a mother can, can die when the child is still alive in her womb and her baby can still be born alive. So, so in other words, the idea that a preborn baby is part of the mother's body as opposed to inside the body, it's provably false. The preborn baby is a separate being, a separate person. So what then does, does Scripture have to say about the nature of preborn babies? I mean, as we've, we've already seen, the Bible consistently refers to infants that are still in the womb as distinct human beings. On top of this, a case can be made from Scripture that a woman's body doesn't belong to the woman, nor does a man's body belong to the man. I mean, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, you know, this was written to Christians about Christians. I know that. But it doesn't change the fact that all of humanity is rightly under the authority of God. We are all subject to Him. None of us truly has bodily autonomy. Now, non-believers won't recognize this fact, like any other scriptural argument, but it doesn't make it any less true. Okay? And back to the main issue. Since the mother is not aborting herself but her preborn baby, baby it, is, it is only appropriate, I believe, to view it as killing a separate person. And then this is where we get into the third argument, okay? Because people, people who know they can't deny the humanness and the distinctness of a preborn human being, they'll change the argument. They want to make it about fairness. Weighing the preborn's child, weighing that right to life against something else. You know, sometimes it's, it's the quality of life, whether the mother's quality of life or the baby's quality of life. And there are a lot of possible directions that these arguments can go. And, and so I'm going to address them in general. I, I think regarding the, the mother's 
quality of life. Most so-called reasons to abort are about convenience, which makes them easier for me, at least, to dismiss. Say the mother doesn't want to be embarrassed, or maybe she doesn't want to, a pregnancy to change her body or to affect her job performance. But there are more difficult questions or, or difficult arguments to answer. You know, maybe it would be difficult for the mother to raise a child without a support system. Perhaps she's financially unstable or a teenager still in school. You know, the, the most serious and difficult discussions occur if the mother is very young or if she is mentally ill or if her pregnancy was the result of rape or incest. And perhaps most poignantly, in the case that the mother is physically endangered by the pregnancy. On the one hand is the baby's quality of life. Okay, we, we talked about the mother. Let's talk about the baby's quality of life. Someone might argue that if a child is unwanted, he or she will be unloved. And other times, the baby might have severe birth defects, which could make his or her life very difficult, along with the lives of the parents. So there are a lot of, of potential, I'm putting this in air quotes again, reasons that people want abortion to be an option, but there are also counter-arguments to all of these. Now, the easiest pro-choice arguments to shoot down, in my opinion, are the ones that are allegedly on behalf of the baby. Okay, Because first of all, it's well-documented. Somebody wants that baby. There are literally today between one and two million couples looking to adopt a baby. And many of them specifically ask for babies with severe birth defects because that's their calling. Secondly, is it doing right by the child to say, you know, you might have a sorry life, so I'm just going to take away any opportunity for you at all to live? Nah, that's, that's not a good argument. Logic asserts we can't know how a person's life will unfold. You know, some, some folks are born into amazing families where they're given everything they could possibly want, and they are miserable. And others are, are born into abject poverty and violence and cultural unrest, and they still have joy. Now, regarding birth defects, many are told their child will end up with severe problems, and they turn out completely healthy. Some of you have experienced that. Others do end up with a special needs child, and they learn more from that kid about love and grace and patience than they would have from a non-special needs child. Sometimes I think a person with a special needs child knows more about how God feels dealing with us. Again, if we, if we know that there are couples seeking to raise a child, even, even a, a special needs child, then why would anyone think it's okay to execute the child in the womb? I, I, don't, I don't get it. So, so what about the arguments regarding the quality of life for the mother? Now, for, the, for these arguments that, that are more about convenience, I think most people agree, at least in theory, that people ought to be responsible for their own actions, even if there are unintended consequences. You know, that, that goes for mothers and fathers, incidentally. Abortion takes a human life rather than taking responsibility. And to use a very fitting cliche, two wrongs don't make a right. But some of the circumstances that I listed earlier can be tougher to object to, especially if protecting the mother. 
So the question to answer is, is abortion ever right? And I think the short answer is no. And I'm going to put this caveat, except in the case of protecting the mother from imminent death. This is my opinion. Because I believe that in those circumstances, it's a choice in the same way that a person running into a burning building may have a choice to only save one person by dragging them out. In, in those cases, I think there's more room for opinion and for grace. But those cases are exceedingly rare. They do occur, but they are exceedingly rare. However, in pretty much every other circumstance we listed, a baby could be brought to term and given up for adoption by someone that will have been extensively vetted and that will love that child. Now, in the, the relatively rare case of pregnancy caused by rape or incest, I, I want to say up front, that entire situation is grossly unfair. It's tragic. But friends, even though there's no way around the fact that it's so unfair, can we agree that God in His perfect will and His perfect plan can bring something beautiful out of terrible circumstances? I mean, I'm pretty sure that's a proof. God can take something horrible and make it beautiful. It's still unfair. But let me suggest this, this idea. Save the baby and punish the predator. You know, for the record, if, if courts... And they won't do this yet. But if courts would lock up proven rapists and child molesters for life without parole, the commission of these terrible crimes would plummet overnight. And it would reduce the, the number of abortions uh, because of that reason from around 1.5% to functionally zero. And there's, y'all, there's a reason that God's law forbade incest and rape is one of the few violations in the Old Testament law that carried the death penalty automatically. So on that rather intense note, uh, let's bring our attention back to Scripture because I believe the Bible actually has plenty to say about abortion, uh, even though it's never directly addressed. By the way, there are two Old Testament passages that liberal scholars use and say that they support abortion, and they do not. But I'm only sharing this with you in case you ever hear the argument. There's a link at the bottom of your bulletin insert. I know it's kind of hard uh, to, to copy that you know, by looking at it and typing it in. But if you go on the email that Norma sent out, um, you can actually just click on that hyperlink and it'll take you there. Uh, it's, a, it's a great website. It, it explains how both of those arguments are absolutely ridiculous. But I don't even want to go into them today. Okay, That's just There's no point in that right now. So if you want to look more into that, Check out that link. Anyway, uh, here's some of what the Bible says about children. Psalm 127 says a child is a blessing from God. I mean, it's been pointed out that, that, that the psalmist didn't say a child is a burden or an inconvenience, but a blessing. And we believe that children are made in God's image. And, and Jesus himself showed he has a special place in his heart for little ones. And if we accept the premise that a preborn baby is a human being, 
distinct from his or her mother, then it follows that an abortion is a homicide. There are other passages in the Bible that address this. In Matthew 5, Jesus quotes the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. Proverbs 6.17 tells us that the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. So if this is what Scripture says, then how should a Christian view abortion? And what are we called to do about it? Friends, this is where I believe we, Christians, are called to take a stand. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak out for those who cannot speak, for the rights of those who are doomed. It is our job as Christians to speak on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. For those who say that they would never procure an abortion for themselves, but they are still pro-choice, I would recommend that they read and process Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 and take it with deadly seriousness. He says, rescue those, we read this earlier, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling toward the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay each man according to his word? I mean, do you understand that? He's saying we're responsible if we make no effort to help those who are unjustly doomed to being put to death. And if anyone, I, I believe this with all my heart, if anyone is killed unjustly, it's a human being in the womb who has no say in his or her creation. He's never committed a sin. You know, he has, he has no voice to defend him or herself. Now, we can sit there and argue till the cows come home. What about the originals? Listen, you are sinful until you sin. Okay, then you're a sinner. But you're sinful at conception. But no baby in the womb has ever committed a sin. Can we agree on that? Okay. I want to make sure everybody's on. So, so this baby has not been able to determine that he was to exist at all, or she. He just is. He exists. Has never done anything wrong and has no way to defend himself. Again, we have the responsibility to speak for the silent and defend the defenseless. That is our job as Christians. That's a big part of what we are called to do. We should support the abolition of abortion just as Christians fought for the abolition of slavery. And yes, I'm going there. Before you blow off the comparison, I want you to think about it. Slaves in America were not legally considered human beings, right? They're viewed as an extension of their owner's property rather than having bodily autonomy. It was argued that the economy, particularly in the South, was so dependent on slave labor that abolishing slavery was going to financially ruin people. And on top of that, many believed that that freed slaves would, would be doomed to a subpar existence, which is ironic. Subpar compared to what? Slavery? Come on. But despite all those arguments, Christians started pushing. And around the Revolutionary War, one of the northern states, I I don't remember which one, I, I, 
I don't even remember if I figured out which one it was, but I read about it. One of the northern states decided enough was enough, and they declared slavery illegal. And then over the next three decades, other northern states followed suit, either ending slavery outright or at least beginning the process to abolish it. Now, bear in mind, this is important, okay? In the early 1800s, Millions of Americans believed slavery was morally wrong and they would never own a slave themselves, but they didn't think it was their right to tell other people that they should free their slaves. Specifically, many people figured that it didn't affect them as long as it was just in those states down south because it's a states' rights issue. But Christians kept pushing. And in 1808, the federal government abolished the transatlantic slave trade, meaning no more legal purchasing of slaves. It was still, there was still a, a market, an underground market, so to speak. But that was a big win for abolition. But here's the thing. The slaves that were purchased before then and all the children born into their families were still slaves. And so Christians kept pushing. And finally, almost 90 years After the first state outlawed slavery on January 1st, 1863, the President of the United States boldly declared that all Americans are free. And I think that happened because Christians didn't give up. Faithful Christians kept praying, they kept campaigning, they kept preaching, they kept speaking truth and love, and eventually many of them even took up arms to defend the cause of freedom. And I lead with that to say, folks, listen, I I personally feel that overturning Roe v. Wade wasn't enough. You can quote me on that. Roe v. Wade wasn't enough. If any U.S. president was convicted that elective abortion is wrong and grew enough of a spine to outlaw it by executive order, I think posterity, I think 100 years from now, people would view that, that man as another Lincoln. Because I believe the more we know about unborn infants, the more we're going to recognize, yeah, they absolutely are human beings. And we've been allowing a holocaust to occur in this country for almost 50 years. Or if Congress is finally convicted to choose what's right over what gets votes. you know. But, but until that happens, it's probably on us to do what we can, guys. It's probably on us. And while we we may not have the power to make laws, there are some things that we can and should do. Okay, first of all, we should pray for the hearts of our leaders and fellow citizens. In fact, we're commanded to in in the Word of God. Pray, pray, pray. Secondly, we can vote in a way that honors life. And we can even get politically involved if the Holy Spirit moves us in that direction. But make sure it's the Holy Spirit. What else can we do as Christians? We can speak truth in love, believing that God will soften hardened hearts. Another thing we can do is we can ask the Lord to show us if we are led to adopt or foster kids whose mothers bravely brought them into the world in spite of all of the difficulties associated with that. And even if that's not our our personal calling, we can, we can help to support our friends and our neighbors and our family who do foster and adopt. We can help them with our, our time, our financial resources, and our prayers. 
We can actively help support wonderful organizations like Hope Women's Center and Shiloh Place that take care of mothers and babies from the womb on. On that note, um, let's disprove the accusation that we only care about babies before they're born, okay? Can we, can we disprove that? It's a false allegation, but it's made a lot. If you look at the stuff that this church supports, can you honestly say that we only care about babies before they're born? No. And that's most churches in the United States. Most churches are actively supporting crisis pregnancy centers and things like that, giving money to people in need. And friends, I want to I end with an exhortation. Don't mistreat people who have bought into the worldly view of, of abortion. Don't, don't be hateful toward them. Love them. As Christ asked the Father to forgive those who nailed him to the cross, you know, I, I think so we must seek the good of those who have not yet received the eyes to see. Most importantly, Point them to Jesus because he is the one who changes hearts and minds. You know, by, by Jesus' life and sacrificial death and resurrection, God redeems people. He makes a new creation and then he mercifully forgives us of our sins. And guys, abortion, like any other sin, it can be forgiven and washed away by the blood of Christ. And people need to know this. They need to hear this. They need to be told, hey, this isn't something you have to carry with you on, on your back forever. This is something that God forgives you of when you turn to Him. People need to hear about God's amazing mercy and His abundant grace. And I'm going to tell you, as a friend to many men who've encouraged their partners to abort and women who've had abortions, I know there is a vast depth of emotional pain that so many people are living in because they know that what they did was wrong and they, and they, they struggle to accept God's forgiveness. Listen, we have the message of reconciliation. We have the message of forgiveness of sin. Let's not be condemning people. Bring them to Jesus. So rather than abusing, accusing, and shunning those who support abortion, continue to preach Christ and live out his love graciously while you refuse to be cowed by a world that supports sin and hates truth. And I want to close with this passage. This is from 1 Peter, um, and then we're going to pray. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is what we're called to, guys. Let's pray. Father God, um, just ask that if there's anyone here, Father, whose heart has been touched today, I just I pray in Jesus' name that you encourage them um, 
to walk in faith. This is, is, is such a, it's such a difficult subject for so many people, and there's so many personal reasons that people struggle with the subject. And, and yet, Father, I, I believe that we are called to speak truth in love. And I thank you that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I pray, Father, that it becomes that a, a continued thing where <laughs> we just keep moving away, further and further away from abortion as a nation. Father, I pray, though, that for Christians that we don't attack people who disagree for now. Help us to love them. Help us to accept you know, the verbal abuse and the, the anger. And God, just help us to recognize that just like us, these are people who need Jesus. And I pray, Father, for repentance. I pray for repentance for those of us who act hateful toward others. And I pray for repentance for those who do not believe in you. And I pray for repentance for those who believe in you but have not yet submitted to your will. And Father, please let this be something that keeps this nation from having to be crushed. I pray that we're brought to, brought to our knees in the right way before we have to be brought to our knees in submission to another nation. And I believe that you are at least temporarily giving us a respite in that downward slide that we've been experiencing, and I think that this ruling was a big part of that. But Lord, no matter what comes down next, I pray that you will help Christians to love you to love our neighbor as ourself. Let our example draw people to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.